Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Spooky Zoop Podcast. What's up, everybody? This is Ted. <laughs> I'm Jesse. So before we get started on uh, in today's episode, just want to remind everyone that these, uh, if there are any images associated with our stories today, we will post those on our Instagram, which is Spooky Soup Podcast. Uh, go ahead and check us out there. Give us a follow. Um, also, if you... Like our, like I just mentioned, if you have any scary stories that you would like to send in, in to us to read, they can be true, they can be completely made up. As long as they're spooky, we would love to read them. Do it. Also, since it is currently September, it's totally fine to start celebrating Halloween early. Just, just a heads up. Okay, I mean, like with Jesse and I, every day is Halloween. Black number sure. one... Typo negative, every day is Halloween. Every day, vampire or not. But it officially starts September 1st, okay? It does. Uh, see, for me, Halloween, September 1st to October 31st, right? And then Christmas, November 1st to <laughs> December 25th. Also, I just wanted to say one more thing before I got started. We've received feedback from all you awesome listeners from uh, telling us like, Oh, this, this story you guys told on the podcast was so creepy. And I'm like, really? I like, I didn't think that was that creepy. What about this one? And they're like, Oh yeah, that one was good too. Just not as creepy as this other one. And so I think it's, it's funny that how it's funny how like our opinions are changed on those. Uh, so anyways, what I'm saying is if you guys would love, uh, if you guys could give us feedback, that would be awesome. Yeah. Tell us what stories scare you. Yeah, that would help, at least it would help me get a better direction of what to write for. Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Well, um, I'll go ahead and get started. I have, once again, two stories. And this first one is post, uh, and this first one is from Reddit user Dark Killer Diamond, and it is called, I Have a Spirit Following Me. Love it already. Every night I go to bed around 10 p.m. since I have to be at work by 7 a.m. This night was just the same. I got in bed and was soon out. I then woke up to a bang and quickly jumped out of bed. I ran downstairs and saw a cup smashed onto the floor. Confused, I cleaned it up and went back to bed for work in the morning. The next day I was doing paperwork and I felt like I was being watched, but every time I turned around, no one was there. I guess one of my coworkers noticed and asked if I was alright. I jumped when I heard him because I felt like I was being watched. He calmed me down and asked me what was wrong. I just told him I had a rough night. He told me about the massage parlor he goes to saying how it would relax me. I took his word on it and called them and we scheduled an appointment after work. When I got there, I spoke to the woman at the desk who told me where to go. When I finally got my massage going, that's when I began to relax. I then heard a whisper in my ear telling me to go home. What? The massage therapist stopped. Oh, sorry, I didn't say anything. I was confused but thought maybe I was hearing things. So I let her finish and I, and I left. I felt so relaxed and got in my bed when I got home and fell right to sleep. I woke up and saw it was dark in my room. I couldn't move, which confused me, and so I was looking around. I couldn't see much with how dark it was, so I tried my best to move until I saw a shadow appear in my room. It was in the corner. It swayed back and forth. 
I would be lying if I didn't say I was terrified. It started to get closer, which really started to scare me, and I was hoping to wake up. I finally got a good look at this thing, and I wanted to scream. It had no eyes, no teeth. I only saw darkness in those areas as it reached out for me. I tried to get away, but still couldn't move. And when the thing finally grabbed me, I felt the cold of its hand. I wanted to scream until it dug its nails right into me. I then got up gasping for breath and realized I was sweating a lot. I thought it was all a bad dream until I felt my side where it got me and I saw a mark there. I knew it was real. I couldn't go on like this so I decided to stay with my sister for a while until I cleared my head on this whole thing. When I finally went over, my niece ran up to me and gave me a big hug. Hi Uncle Mark, she said as I picked her up. My sister came over. Hi Mark, come on in. When we got in, she asked if I was alright, but I didn't know what to say. All I told her was I needed to clear my head and she completely understood. I didn't want to say anything about the spirit thinking she wouldn't believe me. After a few days, everything seemed to be going back to normal until one day my niece asked if we could play hide and seek. I told her sure and we played. After a while counting, I went to go find her. I checked in her room and heard her talking in the closet to someone. I went to open the closet and realized it wouldn't open. I asked her to open the closet, and she said that he didn't want her to. No, no, no. <laughs> I got more concerned and told her to open it until I heard a voice that wasn't hers. I said no. I got scared, and the closet opened as my niece came out. I ran to my car and drove off, realizing it followed me. And before I left, my sister came out to see what was wrong. But I got the hell out of there. I've been staying in hotels, but I have to keep leaving because it follows me. I'm currently in a hotel now. I write this hoping someone hears my story before it's too late. I hear it coming, and I'm not running anymore. I know this is the last time I will write. So goodbye to everyone. Mark, are you okay? <laughs> a devious laugh. Don't give me that. <laughs> <laughs> Spooky. That's a good story. I don't like the part about the closet. Same. No, not same, into same, that. Same. Okay, so this next one, this is the story that was sent into us. This is from Freak, P-H-R-E-A-K. Was this email or Reddit? Uh, this was sent in to us on our Reddit Dope. messages. So, It was by complete happenstance that I found it, yet I felt like I was drawn to it. While traveling for work one day, I noticed an overgrown back road I had never seen, especially on my GPS. No signs, no indication, it was even there. Being curious, I took the short detour and took the rocky road to just see where it led. No further intentions beyond my own curiosity. Furthering down the poor excuse for a road, there was a small turnaround. Nothing but trees surrounding the entire area. My only thought was that there may have been a house back there at one point that had since been demolished, and I decided to turn around and head back, but that's when I saw it. Tucked back behind a small cluster of trees, it stood, barely, decrepit and yet unwavering. It was an old, rundown church, paint peeling and chipping from the wooden lap sliding. Some windows intact and some broken. The doors now replaced with peeled painted plywood 
and padlock chains holding it shut. The glass arch over the door since covered with what looked like paper and tape. As bad as the building looked, the landscaping was neatly manicured aside from some overgrown vegetation closer to it. Someone was at least trying to half-ass take care of it, sort of, but the question stood in the back of my mind. What kind of church is this? Not that I particularly care about religion, but it was always neat to see an old church sign that states something along the lines of, Welcome all, Church of God, Pastor Francis W. Eldridge. However, there was nothing to allude to that. It was even a church other than the shape of the building. To me, this was the extent of my find. Nothing. An old church-like building and nothing else of value to take note of. I did take a picture for posterity's sake because it was a cool looking building. I grabbed my notebook and jotted something down about it and closed it up. With that, I took my leave and went about my business. The church already gone from my mind. Following the road back out, I continued to my job site and finished my workday flawlessly. It wasn't until that evening that I thought about it again. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I wanted to look at the picture. I left my couch to grab my phone from where it was on the charger and unlocked it. Opening the photo gallery, I clicked the picture of the church. It looked the exact same as when I was there, but something seemed off. It felt almost as if the picture was studying me just as much as I was studying it. I immediately grabbed my laptop and opened it up. Syncing my phone to it, I transferred the image over so I could enhance it and have a better look. Were those eyes in one of the windows? A person? Maybe. It was getting late, so my eyes were likely playing tricks on me, so I shut everything down and just called it a night, letting the church leave my mind and going to bed. I had to go back. There was something about it that just left me with that feeling of dissatisfaction, and I needed to know why. Now, I tried to claim to be a smart man, so I dialed up a friend to tag along with me. She was into this kind of stuff as well and would enjoy a short little getaway. Throwing some stuff in the back of my truck, I set off to pick her up, and we were on our way. Brief side note here, she claims to be a witch, and to be honest, knows quite a lot when it comes to these kind of things, where I, on the other hand, am more of a paranormal enthusiast. Our interests align in that respect. Showing her the picture on the drive, we were coming up with all kinds of crazy stories of the building, but nothing prepared us for what it really was. Upon our arrival, there was nothing out of the ordinary. But for the sake of caution, I pulled around behind the church to park out of sight. Now, like I said, I'm a paranormal enthusiast to the extent that I have little gadgets such as an EVP recorder, EMF detector, a thermal imaging camera, temperature gun, various boom mics, and a good set of headphones. You know, the works. And it's all situated in a backpack that I keep with me at all times for interesting finds like this. I don't get all crazy with the information I find, but I do like to write about it and look over some of the photos and whatnot, mostly because it's fascinating and would be awesome to find something. My friend, on the other hand, has a flashlight, a book in all Latin, and a small bag she keeps with her that has some crystals and salt in it. Total professionals, right? We got out with our gear and walked up to the church to start looking around. All my fancy little tools led me to nothing out of the ordinary, no spikes on the EMF, just an overall sense of wariness. As I do without thinking, I approach what could be only be assumed was a door, 
and I gave it a try. To my surprise, it opened. I pulled out a little container with a note from earlier and placed it next to a rock out front. I then gave my friend a grin, saying, Hey, this door is wide open. And we both walked inside. I'm pretty sure I caught her rolling her eyes as she tailed behind. What we were greeted with inside was just an old rundown church, dust covering nearly every inch of this place. The cobwebs where you would expect them, Bibles laying open on random pews. The pair of us began walking around checking things out, with her and her flashlight and overall badassery, and me with some fancy gadgets. Just as I was about to give up and call the day, she called out informing me that she found something weird. As I approached, she pointed out towards the altar. Following her direction, I noticed another open book laying open on the altar, free from dust. Looking over the book, I had no idea what I was looking at. It was all foreign to me. Hearing her audible sigh of disbelief, she explained what it was. It was the Ars Goet Ia from the Lemigiton Clavicula Salomonis the first book from the Lesser Key of Solomon, which, she pointed out, a grimoire of sorts that speaks of a total of 72 demons and the means to invoke them. This, of course, piqued my interest. Someone must have been here recently, since this book was clear dust unlike everything else. This is about the point that we should have just packed it up and left, and I wish I would have listened to that instinct instead of being an idiot and continuing on. When we found what was not meant for us, or for any normal person to see, yet we did, and I woefully regret making her come with me. I pulled out the temperature gun and started looking around the area surrounding the altar. At this point, I noticed about a 15 degree drop near the middle of it, and 20 plus at the bottom. Without even thinking, something just compelled me to do it. I grabbed the altar and pushed it back. To both of our surprise, it slid backwards with ease, opening the floor below to expose a set of stone stairs leaning down. No. <laughs> Shining our flashlights down, we could see the stairs descending into the darkness in a spiral pattern, no railing, no end in sight. Looking at my friend and getting the nod of approval, we ventured into the unknown abyss. Several minutes had passed and we reached the bottom, and my gauge detected noticeably colder temperatures. At the base of the stairs, we were standing on solid ground, hard concrete that had seen plenty of wear that exposed the stone foundation underneath its areas. Other than that, the room was barren, blank stone walls that displayed various degrees of erosion, but one brick stood out of the way and it was very worn down. Most of the wall was rough cut stone, the edges a bit jagged and coarse where this particular spot was smooth and indented like it had been touched a lot. She tried to stop me, and I wish I would have listened, but I placed my hand on it and gave it a push. Nothing. Sighing again. Crap. Her sigh. I should have picked up on the desperation in her tone. She came up next to me and placed her hand on a lower stone, just as smooth, and pushed it. Taking her lead, I pushed mine as well watching as the stones slid back. As they eased backwards, a foul and sickening stench seeped through the now exposed doorway leading into an even darker area of this cellar. Overcome with the smell of rot and decay, we readied our flashlights like we were about to perform a breach straight from an 80s cop show 
entering the room and pivoting to each other. This was it. This is what I wanted to find. Something worth writing about. I wish I knew then how much it was going to cost me. Adorning the walls to the left and right of us were three stone shelves built into the wall, about six foot wide and six shelves per section. On the shelves sat various items ranging from bones to books, half-empty vials of liquid and trinkets. Between each section hung a cross, large and iron, two per wall and all four inverted. The floor was covered in as much dust as one would expect, making it barely possible to tell if the floor was stone or dirt. Approaching one of the shelves, we glanced through the relics, her to the liquid and me to the trinkets first, noticing that most of the items were of varying religions. To an extent, they all had some kind of meaning behind them. The miscellaneous liquids all shared a high viscosity, being almost gel-like. Before moving to the other shelves, I made a point to flip the crosses to their upright positions. We then approached the other shelves, her to the books and me to the bones, with me rotating these crosses as well. As I noticed the human skull, she let out an audible gasp. The remaining four books of the lesser key, Ars Thiguria Goetia, Ars Paulina, Ars Amadel, and Ars Notoria were there in front of her. Exchanging glances and a brief discussion led to us to decide to snap some pictures and get the hell out of there. In my hurried state, I run around to grab my bag that I sat on a nearby stone table. I slipped on a loose rock and fell. Grabbing for something to catch myself, I managed to pull my friend down on top of me. Of course, we both felt our skin crawl as it seemed too convenient to fall at this moment. I rolled out from under her and got to my feet. Dusting myself off, I turned to reach out to help her up. Noticing she was not even acknowledging me anymore, I followed her gaze to the now dust-free spot I formerly occupied. Etched there in the stone floor were lines. Dropping back to my knees, we both began furiously wiping the dust away to see what lay before the dirty floor. As the sigil below became clearer and clearer, a pentacle was first visible with other shapes inside of a circle, letters surrounding it, spelling out, Thastar, and I had no idea what it meant. Shooting me a look which screamed, idiot, my friend brushed away the last bit of dirt, exposing an O, leaving me thoroughly confused. Not that either one of us could speak, it's just that we were more or less knew what the other was saying with just a look. She pointed at an A first, then the S, and made a circle gesture with her hand, clarifying the correct order. Astaroth? Like Hale Astaroth, commander of 40 legions worth of demons? Wait, like the great Duke of Hell, right? The instant jaw drop she expressed should have been a clear sign of my mistake, but it faded from view as it quickly came at me. The instant jaw drop she expressed should have been a clear sign of my mistake, but it faded from view as quickly as it came. As if almost the instant I finished my sentence, the four crosses creaked slowly back to their inverted positions and dust swept up through the room as if an ocean breeze just blew through a patio door. Immediately, the room became alive with disembodied voices surrounding us, drowning out any and all sounds. One voice stood out to me, and it was the quietest one of all, repeating itself in the same tone and tempo. He's watching. And this put me right on edge. 
This is what she was sighing about. This is what the looks and everything was for. She knew I was going to do my usual and screw something up and get us into a jam. She was there when it happened before and witnessed it firsthand. Noticing she was about to bolt for the door, I spun around to grab my bag, and as my hand was grasping around the straps, she screamed out, No! See, the stone table that I laid it on, it wasn't just a table. It was a sacrificial altar, and with my history, I let him out. There are a few things I failed to mention at the beginning of this story. Aside from being an empath, I'm what you call a conduit. And not that hippie conduit where I give off a spiritual energy and it feeds others, you know, so be positive bullcrap. No, not that. The other kind. The scarier kind. The kind of conduit that acts as a link between their realm and ours. A doorway into our world. Spirits and demons alike can, and at will, in moments of vulnerability, take hold of me and more or less take possession over my body. With that out of the way, I do not offer myself up as being vulnerable, not since the first time it happened when something was trying to leech off of my very essence. I protect myself with all kinds of different things, holy items and crystals, blessed totems and the like. However, with something as powerful as him, as Astaroth, and the fact that I was standing in his summoning sigil and came into indirect contact with the sacrificial altar, this left me in the most vulnerable state possible. It was as easy for him as it would have been for a toddler to rip through wet toilet paper. As my consciousness faded out, the last thing I saw in her face was shock and complete failure as the tears stained her cheeks. Knowing she could do nothing for me, she turned and fled up the stairs, and that was all I remember. At least it was until today. The thing about being taken over is that you don't feel it. You kind of just go into a coma. You're in a dreamlike state. Nothing that you do anymore is exactly you. Maybe a plus, but the real plus is that since demons are pretty powerful, your body kind of doesn't age. So maybe it's a win, but why now? Why all of a sudden? Remember that note I wrote at the beginning of all this and the container that I hid it in? I typically don't do these things half cooked and I like to make sure there is always a contingency plan in place, albeit sometimes delayed. The beginning of the story started in 2022, and now it's 2046, and someone found my container. The church was finally bought and had been renovated some years ago. The caretaker came across the small plastic box when he was digging up some old brush. Inside of my container was a picture of me with my note. If you find this, it's probably too late already, and I'm sorry. I have died, or they have finally broke in and took me for their vessel. All I ask of you, dear reader, to find me, the man in the picture. If it leads to an obituary, stop there. If it leads you to me, the person, read further. I dabble into paranormal research and investigating, and I typically take precaution before doing so, but something as of late has been pulling me harder than any time before trying to get to me to go somewhere of an unknown destination. So if you find me, assume it is not me. Take precaution and please take action. If you find me, I promise there has been a trail of death left behind in my wake. End the unnecessary death of innocent people and end my internal suffering. I beg you. 
Through the church and members of the clergy, the caretaker had found me. They acted as I had asked and taken care of the situation. Yet, here I am, writing my story. I would love to tell you that they decimated the foul demon that took residence in my body for two decades, that my body and consciousness was somehow preserved after the fact, but I can't lie. They did find a way to rid my body of the demon. They tried countless exorcisms, hypnotherapy, electroshock therapy. They tried everything you can think of. In the end, my body died. Astaroth made it out and took the body of an unsuspecting spectator. And me? Well, I'm inside of you. Oh, that's such a good story. <laughs> it was a great story. I hope this doesn't offend him, but I it's like a supernatural episode, but like the whole season. Yeah, you know, like, I'm like that. I just watched a movie from the Conjuring universe. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's how, great like, timing. Ed and Lorraine Warren. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, that was so good. Yeah. Um, Freak, you've been awesome. That's the second story that we've read on the podcast. Uh, keep them coming. They're excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Please send them to us. That was amazing. We need more. Yes, we do. More. So what do you have for us today? All right. I I think you're going to like it. We'll see. I would hope so. <laughs> so it's a local story, as you probably know. And, well... I guess let's just get right into it. I'm calling this story The Halloween Mask in the Water. Okay. All right, so our story takes us to Liberty Park, which is a beautiful 80-acre park in the middle of Salt Lake City. It has a huge pond, plenty of trees, a cafe, a playground slash amusement park of every kid's dreams, and numerous walking paths decorated with massive pine trees and intricate cement work. It's ginormous and easy to spend hours wandering around, reading all the historical plaques and watching the dogs chase the ducks. It's even home to Tracy Aviary. We used to go to Liberty Park as kids. I mean, at least I did. I don't know if you did, <laughs> but I went a few times. Yeah, just a few. Yeah. And I remember feeling like there were two sides of Liberty Park. There was the bright side and the dark side. The bright side always felt good, cheery, sunny. And then the dark side was over by the pond, and even though we'd have fun playing there, something about it just always felt different. It didn't feel quite right. I want to transport you back in time. The year's 1920. It's six days after Halloween, and a young boy is so stoked to go to Liberty Park to play with his new toy boat in the pond. He runs over and plops on the shore, zooming his little toy boat around. He looks down, and among the reeds, just floating right below the surface, something white catches his attention. Aha! A Halloween mask. Score. <laughs> Some teenager must have carelessly tossed it into the water after trick-or-treating. So, of course, the little boy has to rescue it. It's his now, right? Now, the kid can't quite reach the mask, so he looks around for something to poke at it to let it loose from the mud. He finds a piece of wire and it should do just the trick. So he runs back, he pokes it into the water, and starts pulling on the mask, but as soon as it starts floating towards the boy, he realizes the object itself is uh, squishy and heavier than he expected it to be. As soon as the mask is freed from the mud, and the boy pulls it in closer, he sees that the mask is attached to a head, which is attached to a corpse. 
Yikes. and it isn't even a mask at all, but rather the face of Francis Koros, a woman who has been missing for days. Oh my gosh, so scary. Mm-hmm. Police who arrived on the scene knew exactly who was in the water because they had been looking for Francis since October 17th. She was a nurse living in Salt Lake City who was last seen boarding the 9th East Streetcar. Detectives noted that her body wasn't decomposed, at least not to the point it should have been for how long it had been floating in dark pond water. Keep in mind, she had been missing for about half a month, and dark water is notoriously good at taking care of corpses quickly, so the fact that her skin and everything was still intact was really odd to them. Now let's rewind back to the night of October 17, 1920, when she went missing. At the time of her disappearance, Frances had graduated from St. Mark's Nursing School in 1906 and served as a nurse in World War I for the U.S. Navy at a hospital in Rhode Island. It's said that she was super well-liked and highly regarded as a nurse in her profession. Returning to Salt Lake City in 1920 and while awaiting for an opening at Keith's apartment building, Frances got a temporary room at the YWCA. Most of her family lived in Iowa but her brother Yarrow lived in Salt Lake City with his own family, so she wasn't totally alone. On the night of October 17th, Frances walked up to her brother's front door with bags of candy in her hands. She was greeted with the smiling faces of her nieces and nephews, who were all too excited to accept the candy from their awesome aunt, Frey. The dinner table was set, and after a hearty meal consisting of meat pies, mashed potatoes, corn, apricots, bread and butter, and cake, according to the dead history. Uh, she left. She needed to go to the 9th East Streetcar. Now this is important. Remember the big meal that she ate with Yarrow's family. After dinner, Yarrow walked her to the 9th East Streetcar, and on this corner, they waited for it to pick her up. It would take her to the YWCA. And this was the last time anyone remembered seeing her alive. She never made it back home to the YWCA, and she never showed up for work the following day. This was extremely unlike Frances. She was reliable and well-liked, and like I said, she was highly regarded as a nurse, so there's no way she just abandoned her job like that. Yeah, sure. The search was on for Frances, as she was still missing, and her brother Yarrow was named the number one suspect in her disappearance because he was the last person to see her alive. Now, Yarrow claims to have tracked down the streetcar conductor that would have driven Francis to the YWCA. According to him, the driver, his name was Carl Warreth, when questioned by Yarrow, he said he remembered seeing Francis hop on the streetcar and remembered dropping her off at the YWCA. Carl, however, the driver, would later testify that he remembered no such thing, that he hadn't picked up anyone, and that... No one matched Francis's description on his streetcar that night. He said he specifically told Yarrow these things when he cornered him, so someone here is lying, either the streetcar driver or the brother. Now, this story only put more of a target on Yarrow's back because of the conflicting testimonies. Another theory was proposed that at some point, Francis had been hit by a car and dragged somewhere. On October 24th, a woman named Mercedes, who lived on the same corner, where Francis and Yarrow waited for the streetcar, told detectives that on the night of her disappearance, she heard a woman's, quote, groans and gasps, but it was raining so hard outside, 
and it was dark that October night, so she couldn't quite see what was going on outside the building. Mercedes told police she heard a man say, My God, what have we done? Oh, what? Another, perhaps more plausible theory, is that of the gray giant. Around the time of Francis's disappearance, a woman was attacked near the same YWCA where she was staying by a man dressed in a gray suit and a hat. He pulled the woman behind a billboard in an empty parking lot. Luckily, she fought him as hard as she could, that she was able to slip out of her coat, escape his grasp, and run away. The next morning, that same woman's coat was found placed neatly on the porch of the YWCA, which was then turned into police. A few days later, a man wearing all gray, fitting the same exact description, attacked another woman not too far away from the same spot. He attempted to carry her away from the lit-up road and into a darker spot, but the woman screamed and fought so hard that he gave up and ran away. The gray giant was never caught, and so people assumed he might have been the culprit of Frey's disappearance. The last most popular theory is that Yarrow murdered his own sister. This would make sense if we look at the streetcar conductor's testimony, which directly contradicts the brother's testimony. Because Yarrow told police that he questioned Carl about his sister's final ride in the streetcar, claiming Carl had seen Frances, yet Carl says no such thing occurred because he never saw her, nor, nor picked her up or dropped her off. If Yarrow did indeed kill Frances, why? What was the motive? There truly isn't much on this case, and perhaps we'll never know who did it. Because sadly, it slipped away from the public's attention over time, and search for the killer halted decades ago. The dead history makes one good point, that not only was Yarrow the last person to reportedly see Francis alive, but he also has no one to corroborate his story. No one can vouch for him. Police reports say that Yarrow was extremely cooperative, however, and answered all of their questions willingly, so they released him after three days of questioning. Now we're going to dig into the coroner's report on Francis, and this is where things get really weird. It was clear in the autopsy that Francis did not die by drowning. Her corpse was found with a piece of cloth tied very tightly around her neck, likely being the cause of her death. Clearly this wasn't an accident, and family members testified that Francis was a cheery person and had never shown signs of depression or being suicidal. Her stomach was shown to be completely empty, except for a mysterious red liquid. A state chemist says this could have been either from red pills or red candy. That same chemist also claimed Frances would have died about six hours after her last meal. Now this makes no sense. If she died the night of her disappearance, she would have had a full stomach with all the things she ate at Yarrow's home. Yarrow and his wife said Frances ate the massive meal with them but she didn't have any of the candy she brought for their children. Detectives wondered if Frances was held somewhere alive for two weeks before her body was found because her stomach was completely empty and going off of what the family said, she would have had a big meal in her stomach if she died that night. Her body was stuck in a sitting position, meaning rigor mortis had set in whatever shape she was killed in. She could have been murdered sitting up in a chair or in a car somewhere with back support that allowed her corpse to be frozen in that position soon after the murder took place. Because her stomach was empty, 
The police actually believed that she was killed just a few days before her body was dumped in the cold water of Liberty Park's pond. So where was she being kept alive for so long? Why was there no food in her stomach if she ate such a big meal? Why did the state chemist, a professional, believe her to be killed hours after her final meal, and the police believe it to have been weeks after her final meal? And what was the red liquid they found in the autopsy? Perhaps whoever had taken her the night of her disappearance starved her so there were no contents in her stomach the police could trace back to anything. Or maybe she never actually ate the meal at her brother's house and she was invited over under the guise of family dinner, not knowing that sinister intentions probably waited just on the other side of the door. Yikes. Something interesting came out of the investigation. The cloth used to strangle Francis was found to have belonged to a woman's garment, but it didn't belong to anything Francis had on at the time of her disappearance, which led investigators to believe that a woman was involved in the murder. Was it someone at the YWCA? Was it the Grey Giant? Was it the streetcar driver? Was it Yarrow and his wife? You might never know. Francis is buried at the Mount Olivet Cemetery across the street from the University of Utah. Her case is still a mind-boggling mystery to this day, and her killer, though certainly dead now, walked away freely. Now, on findagrave.com, her memorial reads, She was a nurse, daughter of Albert Koros and Josephine Staska of Bohemia. Age 40 and single, her body was found in the lake at Liberty Park on November 6th. Coroner's jury returned verdict as follows. Francis Koros came to her death felonously by an unknown method between dates October 17, 1920 and November 6, 1920 at the hands of person or persons unknown to us. Wow, have that in your obituary. Yeah. Because they never, they never say the cause of death. Right. So they, that's they interesting. just assume it was the piece of cloth wrapped around her neck. But given it was 1920, they didn't know if that was put on after she was killed or if she was killed with that. But they do know she didn't walk into the lake herself because her boots were not muddy. So someone dumped her there. Right, right. So next time you take a stroll at Liberty Park or sit down for a cup of coffee at the park cafe, remember poor Frances, the nurse in the water whose face looking upward was confused for a Halloween mask. Yo, yikes. (laughs) And I have pictures for you too. Okay. This is a good play off of the episode we did that was titled Halloween Decoration. Yeah, everyone, go listen to that. That's a good one. Pretty crazy story. I hope that one day we can figure out the the answers we need for these these stories. You know, I yeah. don't know whether that's from, you know, I, I, I feel like God has a rewind button or a pause, you know, a little remote that he can control and then he can just be like, oh yeah, let's go back to that moment. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then he can tell us all the answers and we can, f- yeah, we can figure out who the heck killed poor Francis. Yeah. Or, um, the cold case we covered from Kaysville mm-hmm. where the skull was found on the hillside. That's right. Another great episode. Go listen to it, people. Check it out. <laughs> but yeah, it's just insane. I know I reference dead history all the time, but mm-hmm. she really does some good research on local cases. So I kind of use her as like a landing point and go off of it, but she 
at the end of her article on this, she talked about how if this same case happened today, how different things would have been. Because back then, people were like walking into the water to see if they could replicate her boots not getting dirty mm-hmm. and stuff like that, or trying to figure out how she was stuck in the sitting position. But clearly, she wasn't dead for that long before she was placed in the water. Because if she was in there for half a month, her body would be decomposed and yeah. she wouldn't be stuck in that rigor mortis. It's fair. However, it's pretty much winter in Utah at that point. So the cold probably preserved her too. It could have easily. If she was in the water for half a month and Liberty Park being as busy as it is because mm-hmm. people go boating on that pond. Yeah. They take fair. out their kayaks. You'd think someone would have noticed. That's a good point. So. Very interesting. Yeah. It's just, it's so creepy. I hope that little boy's okay. Yeah, traumatizing. Jeez, I know. <laughs> we have uh, two uncles that were, when they were kids, they found a dead body. That's right, we in, do. In Sugar House back when they were kids. So that was a while ago. But yeah, crazy. Oh, yeah. I remember asking them like what they thought about it. And one of them, he was just like, oh, it was weird. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're obviously traumatized. Like, he's having war just, flashbacks. Just tell us. Just tell us. <laughs> you're traumatized, right? Well, cool. Um, I'm going to be thinking about this story for a minute and try yeah. and come up with my own theories because, yeah, this is very interesting. It's like, if the brother did kill her, why? They seem to have a very loving relationship. Like, mm-hmm. she brought candy for his kids for crying out loud. Like, She's a busy full-time nurse. <laughs> yeah. And she took the time to get bags of candy for the children. Yeah, sad. So it just doesn't make sense. Okay, well, with that, we'll uh, scare in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye. <laughs>